Okay. But I t- turn in your Bibles to Acts 16. Let me put my lapel mic on. We're going to look at the, um, as soon as I can get this. There we are. I don't have a strong reading voice, so I'm always told to use this. Okay, Acts 16, verse 1 through 10. This is the same passage that we've been in. This, I guess this is our third or fourth week, week unpacking what we can find. The Bible says everything in the Bible is written for our instruction. Romans and 1 Corinthians quoting the Old Testament. And so what we're doing is we're using this text. And then each week we're just unpacking more of the fodder that God... And I'm going to do the same thing for next week as well. There's so much here. Acts 16 verse 1. Here's the perfect word of our perfect God. Paul came also to Derbe, to Lystra. The disciples was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. His father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him. He took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts. For They all knew that his father was a Greek. While they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and they were increasing in number daily. They passed through the Phrygian, the Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. After they came to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. Passing through Mysia, they came down to Troas. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us, and to preach the gospel to them. Amen. Let's pray. O oh Lord God, what a wonderful God you are. How merciful, how kind, how loving, how patient. And we pr- pray, Lord Jesus Christ, that all of these wonderful things that we enjoy in you uh, would cause us to devote our whole lives to you and to your cause, to your kingdom, to your people. And... Um, And Lord, we long to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Use us. May we be found busy on the day you call for us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let me see if I can tie in what we um, looked at last week and what I intend to look at this week. What we saw last week, it's mentioned a number of times, is that Christ's servants have been commissioned in the Great Commission to go to, to, to the four corners of the earth to make disciples of all the nations, teaching them everything Christ uh, commanded us to believe and to obey and to baptize them, which is an aspect of our discipleship. So the guys are faithful to the charge. And what we looked is, in their faithfulness, the fundamental charge of these um, men is to preach the word of God. The word of God contains the law of God and the gospel of God. So law-gospel distinction. Martin Luther writes a lot about that. But they're busy uh, preaching the Christian faith of the Bible. We said that the Christian faith of the Bible is biblical last week. We said it is, um, it is evangelical. It's meant to be uh, given away. And, um, and that it, is, uh, it should be personal. And we, we saw all of that. So we looked at the nature of 
the Christian faith, the nature of the Christian faith, last week. What I want to consider here this morning, hence the title, I want to consider the nature of the Christian minister. And when I say the nature of the Christian faith and the nature of the Christian minister, I mean, as I understand it to be biblically, obviously with anything which is genuine, you can make a counterfeit. If there is a a, a genuine form of Christianity, which is biblical and word-centric and evangelical, you can counterfeit that. You can make it sacrament-centric, which is the church of my youth, which would be a counterfeit of the truth. And so the same occurs for the Christian ministry. I, I hope that I can unpack and just talk on a few salient points that we learn about the biblical or the true nature of the Christian ministry, i.e. the, the preacher, the evangelist, the, the, the teaching elder, something like that, the minister. And we're, we're all well aware, sadly, both propositionally and practically, that you can turn on the television and you can see a perversion or a counterfeit of, of a Christian minister. We, we want to believe the... the minister according to the Bible. So that's what we're looking at, the nature of a biblical minister of Jesus Christ. Now, if you know the context of of the passage we just read, obviously, Jerusalem Council, Acts chapter 15, they're wrestling over certain things. We'll talk about that later, maybe, in the sermon. They're wrestling over certain things. Subsequent that, uh, Paul wants to go one way. He wants to continue on with his evangelistic missionary endeavors to a different place. And he wants to take with him another gospel servant. So he tells his compatriot, his friend, very close friend, and a very close co-laborer of Jesus Christ, Barnabas. He says, Barnabas, let's go back to the churches that we've been at already and strengthen the brothers. We're going to go back and bring the word of God to, to those churches that have already been established. And, he, and so Barnabas suggests to Paul, his friend, a co-laborer, they're both ministers of Christ. Remember, we're talking minister. Paul's a minister, extraordinary minister. Barnabas, I think I would call him an ordinary minister, but I could be mistaken. But he, they're ministers. And they have this disagreement over taking Paul, uh, John Mark, uh, Barnabas' cousin, or not. And the disagreement is, the Bible tells us, a sharp disagreement. So we have a real minister, Paul, having a real sharp disagreement with another real minister, Barnabas, over whether they should take John Mark, another minister, on a different uh, mission or evangelistic uh, uh, work. And the Apostle Paul says, we're not going to take him because in one of our last mission works, evangelistic endeavors, he left us. He went back home. And so he is faithless in the work. I'm not taking him. And Barnabas, the son of encouragement, I love this about Barnabas, says, no, we, we should take him. So there, there, there's a fight going on. Fight. It's a sharp disagreement. Again, we're just trying to look at what does the Bible teach us about the nature of real, Christ-pleasing, kingdom-extending Bible Christians. You have a real Christian, Paul, a real Christian, Barnabas, both ministers, and they're fighting over another man, minister, should he go back into this field of endeavor? And they cannot come to a meeting of a minds. Beloved, um, Real Christian ministers do disagree. There's a reason there are Calvinists and there are Arminians. There are a reason there, well, I don't want to bring in the Romanists, but I think they have a different gospel. Go to my library. Real Christians differ with real Christians all over the lot. I watched a debate by, uh, or, uh, or an explanation 
by James White, a Reformed Baptist, on a, a fellow, I think he's an Anglican, discussing uh, Arminianism versus Calvinism. And James White says, I think this guy's my brother in the Lord, though I heartily disagree with him on, on, on his book. So real Christians can and do disagree. So it's a fallacy when people say, I, I can only go to church, I can only be a Christian, I can only do this, if I go to a place where they only agree all the time. The, the only place that we can go is we have to die and go to, to be with the church in heaven. So on earth, real Christians do disagree. If you're married to a real Christian woman and you're a real Christian guy, I guarantee you, you're going to disagree on some stuff, even religious stuff. I don't know what, but you will. And in, in addition, um, we could say they, they could legitimately disagree. Uh, I think the Apostle Paul was wrong, but I know Matthew Henry thinks he's right and Barnabas is, is wrong. Um, not only do Christians ministers and Christians disagree, we still sin. Somebody's wrong in the whole endeavor. When they're fighting over John Mark, if Matthew Henry is right, Barnabas is sinning. If I'm right, I think Paul is sinning. Real Christians still sin. Um, there are Christians, they come out of the perfectionist movement out of the Methodist Church, and I think the Nazarene denomination, they teach perfectionism. They teach that you could, as a real Christian, you could get to a certain place in your life and you're 100% sanctified. You don't sin, I will say as an aside. They change the definition of sin. So when we're talking sin, we think, wow, that's pretty impressive. Like you fully love God perfectly and you don't miss it a beat, and you fully love man perfectly and you don't miss it a beat. No, 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 no. I forget how John Wesley phrased it. So it's kind of like, you don't sin, you muff up. <laughs> oh, that's a sin. So even the perfectionists get around this. But we still sin. Real Christians, ministers included, you know this already if you've been here for a week or one day. We still How many times do you sin against God? As a real, I'm talking to real believers. How many times do you sin? Every day, and the catechism says, according to the Bible, in thought, word, and what? Deed. Because the standard, Jesus says, the two greatest commandments, I just paraphrased them, Matthew 22. Love God perfectly, love man perfectly. And it was James Usher on his deathbed. So, oh, the sins of omission. Meaning, not just the sins of commission. I, I wish I didn't do those bad things. I didn't do the good things. So, real Christians and ministers do disagree. And we still sin. And we're going to sin until God calls us um, home. Uh, again, both sins of omission and commission. Now, let's see, leaving the rightness or the wrongness, who's right, who's wrong... There's the fight, and Paul wants to take one guy, and Barnabas wants to take another guy. So Paul takes Silas as his gospel helper, and then he goes to do ministry, gospel ministry, someplace else, which is where we find him. And then Barnabas takes his cousin, John Mark, and he goes and he does gospel ministry in another place, which I think, I think where, where Barnabas goes is Cyprus. And I want to say Barnabas is from Cyprus, which is an island off of the coast of where these guys are, are, are at. And that brings us here. So Paul returns to Derby and Lystra is, is the context of what we're looking at. Paul came back to Derby and, Derby, Derby and Lystra. If you know your Bible, back in chapter 14, it wasn't Paul and Sar Silas that were at Derby and Lystra. It was Paul and Barnabas. And you remember what Paul did was a counterpart of what Peter did. 
to show that the Holy Spirit was going to be given to the Jews. The crippled guy in Jerusalem is healed by Peter, God through Peter. And then to show that the gospel would be given to the Gentiles, the crippled guy in Derby is healed by God the Holy Spirit. So it's the counterpart. They're parallel cripple healings to show the gospel. Christ is for Jew, Christ is for Gentile. So it was at this place, Derby, that Paul and Barnabas, they're preaching Jesus. And this crippled guy is there. And they say, in the name of Jesus, and he's healed. And what did the pagans in, in Derby and Lystra want to do to Paul and Barnabas? They wanted to sacrifice to them. They called one, Bar- one Zeus and the other one, I don't know what they were. But they thought they were gods. But it was, he, he was here previously with Barnabas. What's going on here is God is about to give Paul another gospel servant. Even though I think Paul was sinning by, by pitching a fit and not taking John Mark, one of the principal things we learn, not only do ministers still sin and Christians still sin, there are some Christians that believe this thing called the doctrine of shelving, that if you sin enough, God sticks you on a shelf. He, does, he never uses you again. You're saved, you're going to heaven, but you're on a shelf. I remember the first time I heard this, I was like, as a young Christian, like, Really? And I called down to the ministry. I was still in Boston. I called down to Atlanta and said, shelving? They're going to stick? God's going to sh- How many sins do I get before he sticks me on a shelf? Because I already know that I should be on a shelf because I sin a million times a day. Beloved, God is never going to stick you on a shelf. He may take you to the woodshed shed, so you're going to let go of sin, which is what Psalm 32 is all about. In Psalm 51, he, David went to the woodshed. Then he said, I'm sorry, God. I'll let go of my sin and I'll embrace you. Um, But what we see is God is still using the Apostle Paul. So when we, as Christians and Christian ministers, he he doesn't show us. Now, can a a minister that's fallen sexually, it's always a question in Presbytery, be restored to the ministry? That's another matter. However, God continues to use the Apostle Paul when Peter swore to God three times with the Greek, anathema, may God damn me to hell, I don't know Jesus. Did Jesus stick the apostle Peter on a shelf? No. What did he do? He restored him. He continued to use him. Beloved, this is good news. So this is directly applicable to the Christian minister, but is universally applicable to us, all of us. Because if God said, well, okay, you're my lamb, I love you, you're forgiven, but oh, that's four sins today. Sorry, you're going on the shelf. That would be exceedingly bad news. And so God is about to provide the Apostle Paul with another gospel minister. And in this case, it will be Timothy. So here's what we learn. When we see God providing for Paul another minister, um, here's what we learn. No matter what God's servants do, no matter what Christ's servants do or not do, it does nothing to our God. It doesn't change. Our, jo- our, our God is immutable. It's a fancy word that means he doesn't change. He's Jehovah. He's Yahweh. The God that is, was, and always will be. So Christians come and go. Christians fail and succeed. Ish. No servant of Jesus could stop Christ and the gospel of Christ and the kingdom of Christ. You can't have two ministers pitching a fit. And even if they pitch a fit and they separate, it's not going to stop the work of Jesus. We, our view is too small. We're, there goes the church. It's toast. They're fighting. I've, I've read in the past two months like four or five books on Zwingli. 
Luther and Zwingli, ay, 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 they didn't like one another. Zwingli liked Luther, but Luther was a tough nut. If you read Luther and you differ with Luther on anything, Luther would tell you to your face you're a devil going straight to hell and that you're not a true Christian. He was rough stuff. You were not going fishing with this guy. I loved him. He's a genius. You don't want to hang out with Luther. So you have Zwingli and Luther pitching a fit at one another. Can they stop the cause of Christ? No, they can't. Why? Because our God is Jehovah Jireh. He's the God who always provides. He is the same yesterday. He's the same today. He's the same forever. When Moses, a prophet like no other, spoke face to face with God, no other prophet is like that. It's in the Hebrew, it's mouth to mouth. No other prophet. When he died, was that the end of the gospel work? No more extension of the kingdom. No. When God called Moses home, who else did he send into the field? Joshua. Joshua. When one servant, Paul, can't work with another servant, John Mark, what does he do? I'll give you another servant. I'll give you another, another servant. Um, it was, uh, it'll come to me later at 4 o'clock in the morning. It may have been Zwingli, I can't remember. But there was a minister that started off his ministry in like the 1500s that he couldn't get anywhere in the first year of his ministry, second year of his ministry. And then God sent him to another church, and he thrived. The people were not thriving under his ministry. He sent them somewhere else, and another people were thriving under his ministry. And they sent the first group a different minister that, that were able to thrive under that ministry. And we're taught this principally. When God says, if you can't work with that servant, I'm going to send another servant, it teaches us this, which is hard for us to take. The servants of Christ are exchangeable. Should I say that again? The servants of Christ are exchangeable. The Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter both do the same thing. They use this word in, in Greek, which is exodus. The time of my exodus is near. What does that mean? I'm leaving. And for Paul, he's saying to Timothy, you better tighten up because I'm getting ready to go and you're going to be taking the baton. Christians, Christian ministers and Christians, we think way too much of the servants. And, I, and, I, and I, we have a low view of the church, which is wrong. We have a low view of the Christian ministry. And I, I'm not like sucking my thumb or tooting my horn or anything like that. But we do. We just do. We're typical Americans. It's me, and which is not biblical. It comes from the fall. No one's going to tell me what to do. I'm the master of my own destiny. It's not a biblical view. However, the other view is also wrong. My guru, Reverend Hudson Frutz, and Reverend Hudson Frutz, and he's the best, and Calvin, I love Calvin. What happened when Calvin died? God raised up another servant, Beza. The church doesn't stop. But see, for us as Christians, I, I think we make too much of the gospel servant. Um, we think that the servant and the people are primary when the minister is not primary. The Christian person himself or herself is not primary. What's primary? What does God show us? So it's not going to be John Mark. It's going to be Timothy. What's primary? It's the work. The work is primary. The individual servant is not primary. We are expendable at, at, the, at the will of our master. So the master says, you've got 10 years, you've got five years, you're going to do this work. And we say, aye, aye. And then when God says, you're coming on home, we say, aye, aye. And we go. And the work goes on. The word of God is primary. The word of the gospel is primary. The work is primary. What does John the Baptist say? I must what and he must what? 
I must decrease and he must increase. This is showing us, and th th this is not to disparage any gospel minister. Like I, my, I love the, the, uh, the magisterial reformers, the guys in the 1500s. I love, love, love my English Puritans, which I read every day. The church goes on. It's not the servant, it's the Christ. It's the word of God. It's the work. There, are, there was a, a, some quote of a man who said, you take the honor, give me the work. That's a gospel minister. I will just tell you. For the gospel minister says, call me in our corner, call me reverend. Where's my robe? Da, 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 da. Do you want the work or do you want the title? And what we're learning here is work is primary. What does the Apostle Paul say? I'll, I'll paraphrase. Philippians, I think it's chapter 1. Paul goes into a, a Philippian jail, and what does he say? This is going to work out for the furtherance of the gospel. Then he says, there are pre people who are trying to give me the zing, and so they're preaching, and they're preaching for gain, and he says what? I'm happy about it. I don't care. I don't care who's preaching Jesus. I don't even care why they're preaching Jesus. I'm happy that they're doing what? I'm happy for the work. Us servants, we're expendable. I remember there was someone, one a guy I read, who said the angels of heaven would rejoice no matter what service God gave them. In the, in the example was if God gave to one angel, you're going to be the king or the ruler over like 10 kingdoms. And he said to the other angel, you're going to be a street sweeper. Both angels would fly immediately and with zeal and joy and do their respective jobs. Because we're just servants. It's the word. It's the work. It's Christ. What do we care what happens to us? But we do. And so this is teaching us that we are expendable and the word of our Lord is not. Now, last week, you remembered that we talked about Christianity being evangelical, which means we spread the good news, which is what... E Gospel means euangelion, that means good news. So Christianity is evangelical in its very nature. And so in that, God is going to provide, this Jehovah Jireh, the God who does provide, Paul with his new gospel servant, Timothy. In the remainder of our time, I want to look at the fitness, the fitness of, not physical fitness, but spiritual, constitutional, emotional fitness, spiritual fitness of Timothy to be a gospel minister, and we're going to just use him as an object lesson. We're looking at him individually, but he stands as an object lesson. We're told right away his parentage. The son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, his father was a Greek. And the idea of Greek is being used, not that he's Greek-Greek, but that he's a Gentile. So he may have been a Greek, but he's a Gentile. So his mom is a Jewish woman, and his dad is a Greek. And we're told that his um, mother is a believer, and the implication is the father is an unbeliever. We looked at this in Sunday school. The Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 1 that his, um, his mother is Lois, or his grandmother is Eunice, or vice versa. But they're both believers. And so his mother is a Jew who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of her sins, the, the grandmother as well, and they teach young Timothy to find Jesus in the Old Testament scriptures. And salvation, which is through faith, is not a new thing, through faith in Jesus. But 
I want to look at, remember I prayed about the sovereignty of God in our life. Sovereignty is just not a catchphrase that Presbyterians use against Baptists or Reformed people use against non-Reformed people. And usually it has to do, do with soteriology. It's way bigger than just the doctrine of salvation. I want us today to consider about Timothy and ministers and for us, everything. Our God, Martin Luther, every speck from the, the uh, wheel of an ox cart, God says it's going here, there. Everything. God has so ordained everything in Timothy's life as to make him a fit instrument in the hand of Jesus, to make him a fit minister. So the first thing we learn is that he has a multicultural experience. Now, I'm not using that. I'm not woke. I don't even know what woke is means. I know a quasi what woke means, but I'm like in a time warp. So I read the 1600s, and I'm plus I'm getting old. So I don't use the modern lingo, but he has a, he has a multicultural experience. And God is going to use that multicultural experience for the advance of the gospel of Jesus to make him a better minister. So his mom's a Jew, so he knows the religion of the Jews. He knows the Messiah of the Jews because salvation is of the Jews, Jesus says in John 4. So he knows the scripture of the Jews, and then he, his dad's a Gentile, which means he knows the Gentile culture. God is going to use this guy to be a traveling evangelist, missionary, with the Apostle Paul, who knows both cultures. He knows the Jewish culture. He knows the Gentile culture. He knows the religion of the Jews, and he knows the irreligion or the false religion of the Gentiles. And God uses that back... He, people think, well, seminary starts whenever you go to RTS or Westminster, or in my case, Greenville. Oh, no. No, no. Seminary for the minister of God starts the moment they come out of their mother. God is the one that forms a minister. So that formation of a gospel minister begins in childhood. Who knows if he's going to be a minister? But the, the people that God has as his gospel ministers, they're in trading when they're little ones. And God is going to use everything that he brings into that young man's life for the advance of the gospel. And we should think of it that like that for us as believers, that God uses. We're alike in many ways. We're all sinners. And if we're, we're believers, we're alike in another way that we're equally loved in Christ. But, but beyond that, we're all over the place. Some were raised here. Some were raised like this. Some were raised by that. Who, who governed that? God governed it. And he's going to use all of those differences to advance the gospel. Paul says later, I think in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, to the Jews I become a what? Jew. And then when I go over to the Gentiles, I become what? A Gentile. Because Paul knew both. Timothy's going to be able to do that. This isn't like in a tricky way. You're not, you're not flipping a switch. Because the main thing for the minister is to... There's a phrase, a man of one thing. I want to be a man of one thing as a minister. I want to be a man of one thing. The gospel of Christ. I want to be devoted to the word of God. Other things are other things. Politics, I don't know about. Health stuff, I, I do all my stuff on the internet for myself. And I'm just, a, I practice all that. I, but I want to be a man of one thing. But I want to devote all those other things to that one thing. How can I use these things in my life for the one thing? That's what's going on. And so Timothy will be able to do that. So when he gets around, around the Gentiles, he'll be able to talk Gentile lingo to advance the gospel. When he gets around Jews, he'll be able to use Jewish lingo, as it were, to advance the gospel. Like that. Think, think of your unique background. 
whoever you are, what, what, wherever you've come from, your mom, your dad, your educate, all of that. How can all of that in your life, how can you use it to be serviceable to the kingdom? I once shared with a person that went through some grievously hard times. And he said to me, Pastor, I don't understand why I've had these hard times. And I said, I don't either. Sometimes we don't do ourselves any benefit or the person either if we say we do understand, if we don't understand. It's better if you don't understand to say you don't understand. So I said, "I, I don't know why. But I do know at least this. This is from 2 Corinthians. Whatever pain that you've been through, it's a particular pain. But there's another human being that has gone through that stuff. God will use that so you can... I might not be able to minister to that person, but you can. Does that make sense? That's what's going on. He has this multicultural experience. And what's interesting is... Not only is he this multicultural experience that will be serviceable to the gospel, I'm going to say he has a saved sinner experience. I don't want to pick on his dear mom. It is unmanly and impolite to, speak, to pick on anyone's mother. It's fighting words. But let, if I could be gracious, according to both the Old Testament and the New Testament, Timothy's mother sinned by marrying Timothy's dad. So the Bible says that both in the Old Testament, it's repeated in the New Testament, that believers are only to marry in the Lord. Now, in the Old Testament, it was Jews could only marry Jews. It had nothing to do with race. It had everything to do with religion. If you, if you think it had to do with race, go read Numbers 11. Moses is married to a girl from Ethiopia, and his sister gets mad because she's a black girl, and God says, if you're so mad, I'm going to zap you white with leprosy. And you need to repent. So it has nothing to do with melanin, nothing to do with race, everything to do with religion. So God wants people who love the Lord to marry people who love the Lord. In 1 Corinthians, uh, 1, um, Corinthians 7, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18, speak about this. So no extra charge. If you're not married and you're a young single person, the Bible forbids you to marry knowingly. Now the way that it usually works is girl Christian girl wants to marry a heathen boy. But she knows the minister won't say yes, or the pastor or the parents won't say yes, so she preps the boy to say yes to Jesus. She knows he's not a believer. He doesn't know Jesus from a hole in the wall. So she she preps him to say yes. He says yes. Yes, John 3.16. Okay. You, you, you are gonna be sad after you say I do, because you know you just married an unbeliever. So it, it's religious. I'm not picking on anybody. But this is the way that it works. We want what we want, and we're not going to let anyone, not a parent, not a minister, tell us we're not going to have what we want. And what we, we see is one of the reasons why believers are not supposed to marry unbelievers. Timothy was uncircumcised. According to the law of God, what would Timothy's standing be before God as uncircumcised? He's considered an unbeliever. The Bible says he's cut off. It's not a small thing. People think baptism is a small thing. Circumcision is not a small thing. Baptism is not a small thing. You're treating your kid like a pagan, like an unbeliever. He would have had no rights to the Passover. He couldn't take the Passover. And here's the principle. And and God's going to use this to advance the gospel through Timothy. His mother sinned by marrying an unbeliever. I said this at Sunday school. 
the father didn't allow his son to get circumcised. Why? Because the father's an unbeliever. Unbelievers train their children to be what? Unbelievers. I don't mean to scare anybody, but if you're not married and you're fixing to get married and you pray about getting married, if you marry an unbeliever and you know they're an unbeliever, they are going to train your children to be unbelievers. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. Even if you train them to say yes to the minister and you browbeat your parents to say yes. They're going to train your kid to be an unbeliever. You can take that to the bank. And then Timothy's mom finds forgiveness in Jesus Christ for that sin. And then she trains her son to find forgiveness of his sin in Christ. Why do I, why do I make that as a point? Beloved, not only does Timothy have a multicultural experience to preach a gospel which is for the whole world, he has a saved sinner experience. Only saved sinners are true Christians. Only saved sinners make effective ministers of Christ. What's the gospel? Jesus saves sinners. This man knows what it's like to be a sinner and to be forgiven. He knows what it's like for his mother to be a sinner and to be forgiven. That makes an effective gospel minister. Watch guys that don't know the gospel. All they do is a cheap version of the law. Law, law, law. Girls have long hair, boys have short hair and long dresses. You don't know Christ. You don't know know how to do Psalm 32, Psalm 51. You don't think you're a sinner. How are you going to plead with people, be reconciled to Jesus, if you don't know what that means? So, beloved, you know, sometimes my wife asked me before I became became a minister, do you think you can be a minister? Meaning, like, I'm so bad. Well, Jesus is in the saving bad people business. That's what this is all about. There's not one person in here who isn't a wretched sinner. But only people that acknowledge that they're wretched sinners ever come to Jesus. And that's going to make him a better minister. And so as a minister, when someone says, well, I did thus and so, am I going to go to hell? No, you don't have to go to hell. Why? Because God has made a way in Christ. So it's not like, well, I I remember I was at Presbytery one time and a guy prayed, oh, God, send good people to my church. I said, oh, I want everybody else. You get the good ones. I just want everybody else. Send everybody else to to our little place. What's a good one? None of us are good. (laughs) We're all sinners. But only a minister, only a Christian who really believes that can really say that. And listen. Listen to Christians talk. Blah, 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 blah. Politics, politics, change culture. Wah, 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 wah. There's no Jesus. There's no reconciliation. There's no holiness. There's no grace. They, they can't be gospel ministers. They should go somewhere else. And then the Bible tells us that this Timothy is, is a disciple. The word disciple in Greek is methetes. It means learner of. You, you can't give away what you don't own. Everyone knows this. Sometimes we want our dads and our moms, when we get older and we criticize their, their parenting, why didn't my father do this? Why didn't my mother do this? Blah, 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 blah. They didn't have it. How about that? They didn't have it to give you. And they didn't have it because their grandparents, their father and mother didn't have it to give them. So quit looking for something they didn't have. Like that. You, you can't be a teacher of Christ unless you're a disciple of Christ. You can't be a teacher of Jesus to others unless you're a learner of Jesus. I get people all the time, Pastor, I'm called to the ministry, and I always want to know this. 
Are you a student? Are you a student? Are you a student of Christ? No, I, I hate study. Sit down, man. The best ministers, the best teachers, this is true for PhD professors. What is a professor? A professional student. <laughs> am, am I not right? I'm not picking on them. That's what, what's a minister? A professional, we're not professional, but professional students. You can't teach unless you can learn. You, you, you can't know unless you learn. So he, he, he is a learner of Christ. And then the Bible says he was well spoken of by the brothers. And what this is getting at is not only is this a disciple of Jesus, but this is a man who has been qualified by God the Holy Spirit. The qualifications for elder, for this guy, where are they found in the Bible? 1 Timothy 3, in Titus chapter 1. Let me read them. It's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. An overseer, episcopoi, must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, I, I, I don't want to go off on that. This is not sequential. This is not there. This is, this is not minor. The husband of one wife. That blows how many guys completely out of the water for ministry. I didn't write it. Temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Able to teach. Not addicted to wine. Pug, not pugnacious. You can't be beating people over the head with a brick but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. One who manages his household well, keeping his children under control. But if you can't manage your house, you can't be a minister. Because how we, not a new convert. How, how many times do we see this? A guy's converted to Jesus on a Monday, but because he's, he's smart, he's a lawyer, he votes Republican, he's rich, he's made teacher or minister on Thursday. He has no business teaching anybody. Not a new convert that will not become conceited and fall into condemnation incurred by the devil. That's this guy. The best preachers are students of Christ. They study Christ, but they're the most like Christ. Robert Murray McShane said, the thing that my congregation needs from me is my sanctification. What do you think of that? Dying to sin, growing in righteousness, growing in Christ-likeness. So the Bible here says, these are the qualifications for gospel minister. And when, when we look the other way, we do it to the harm of the church and the dishonor of Christ. The last thing I want to say is, um, not only does he have these saved sinners, this disciple, this learner of experience, the other thing that we know, just because we know the Bible, he has a weak vessel experience. You know Timothy. Timothy, the Bible says, was a tremulous man. He was fearful. People in the church were picking on him because he was too young. He stressed out of his gourd. He has stomach problems. Paul tells him to drink some wine. And he, 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 he's filled with weaknesses. You know, when you go looking for a leader, you don't go, where's the guy in the fetal position? That is the guy that I want. You're right? Who do you go looking for? The guy that's six foot four, he's completely whatever, super handsome, da da da. People vote like this. I've said this a million times. Back when Dukakis ran for president, I was still in Boston, and Dukakis runs for president. Dukakis was four foot two. 
And I remember someone said, Dukakis doesn't look presidential. Why? Because he's a little bitty short guy. That's how, you think, well, people don't do that. Of course, the first king in Israel was picked like that. Who should we get? Saul, look at him. Boy, he's about six foot four. Let's not get the little short guy that loves God. Let's get the big tall guy with fabulous hair who doesn't love God. Beloved, not only do we think the servants are not exchangeable or expendable, and we don't think the work is primary, we start to think like the world in the advance of the church. This, I, I don't like to pick on Francis Schaeffer, but his whole thing was we're going to convert the intelligentsia. We're going to convert the academy. Guess what? You're not converting anybody. That's the Spirit's job. I like the, the idea, but it ain't going to happen. God's plan is not to convert the intelligentsia of the academy to the top 10. What's God's plan? 1 Corinthians 1, 27-31. To convert the low and the nothings is not the guy who's a genius and rich and powerful. It's the what? A bunch of fishermen loons. Why? You, you, just like you can't preach a Christ that saves from sin unless you think you're a sinner, if you're super strong... I can do it. I got this. You don't have any need for Jesus. What are you going to tell the people? So people come into the church, and what, we're all broken. Everybody in this room is broken. I know it, whether you tell me or not. We're all broken. Completely broken. What are you going to say if you're the minister, or someone comes in and says, I'm broken, and you think you've got it all together? The problem is you, brother, sister. You need to tighten up. You need to do the six easy steps. But here is a guy who thinks, I can't even make it through the day without Jesus. What's he going to tell you? Look to Christ. Look to Christ. You see, God gives us these weaknesses, whether they're immediately or immediately, I don't know, that's God's business. He gives them to us, and then what? He uses them. You're going to be a better servant for Christ, whether you're in the pulpit or you're at the house you're going to be a better, more Christ-like, more serviceable servant of Jesus through your weaknesses. Remember that? Is it 2 Corinthians chapter 12? God allows a thorn to get stuck in the apostle Paul. He begs God three times, take it away. And what does Jesus say? Not taking it away. Because what I'm going to do is show you that when you're weak, I'm not weak. What the weaknesses do for the minister, for every Christian, is it throws us back on Jesus. Really throws us back on Jesus. And then we, when we get sent out to other people, and the people say, hey, I have a need. I have a problem. How are you making it through life? Christ. It's Christ. Beloved, God is sovereign. He's sovereign over all of your life. He guided every atom in your life to bring you to Christ. He's guiding everything in your life, everything, to build you up into the image of Jesus. And he's using everything in your life to make you more serviceable to the cause of Christ. Amen? It's glorious. We serve a glorious God. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.